This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Studies of the American West, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. William L. Byrd Jr. is a curator emeritus of the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institution. And I'm delighted to be with him here today to talk about his new book, In the Arms of Saguaros, Iconography of the Giant Cactus, published by the University of Arizona Press. I've read the book. It's fascinating, and it's also beautifully illustrated. In the book, William Byrd explains how the saguaro cactus became a beloved icon and a meme for the American West that we now take for granted in art and interior design and advertising and film. And I'm very much looking forward to our conversation about this. So welcome to the show, William. Uh, Thanks, Dan. So let's start with the obvious question I imagine you were asked. It was one that people asked me when I told them what I was reading why a book about a cactus and actually a book about one species of cactus well the book is is about how the saguaro became the thing that you think about when you think about the american west and uh, so the story starts with botanical exploration and discovery and the role that the plant you know continues to play as an icon of the west um i mean and by iconography, I mean the pictures that you've been carrying around in your head, you know, since you were a little kid and that you can add to anywhere, anytime, and even subtract uh, things. And when I began this project, I would ask people, where do you get your ideas about, you know, this, this particular cactus? And someone would say, well, I could tell how old they were. You know, they would say the Roadrunner you know, the lunchbox I carried, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. I mean, we've all seen them uh, almost to the point that it's uh, almost like a, a kind of a literal a wallpaper uh, in the current moment in which we are now uh, when viral images are just all around us. But there was a time when uh, there was a conscious, uh, you know, strategy that was adopted by tourism and travel people in the Southwest to, you know, turn this thing into a into a symbol and, and into an icon that's great because ever since i read the book there's a thing in psychology i forgot what it's called where I, like i've started to see saguaros even more often popping up on things like they're, they, it seems like they're everywhere now let's take a step back what Most exactly where they where they shouldn't actually be <laughs> yes exactly which is also part of the part of the book right um w- let's take a step back what is a saguaro and, and where where are they found uh the saguaro is a, a columnar uh cactus with the spines it has a super long uh, lifespan anywhere from 150 to 200 years they all start out as columns or columnar plants 
And when they get to be a certain age, say between, well, people think about this differently, around 50 years old, they potentially can grow arms. They begin to grow arms. And that's the, that's the icon. In fact, I'm looking at something now that uh, it's like a pillow across the room <laughs> in my house. Uh, and they, they typically have, you know, two, three, four. I mean, they can have nine. They can have multiple arms. And they have this uh, a kind of a peculiar anthropomorphic quality. And yeah. when you see them for real I mean, in, in the desert, not in a hothouse or a botanical garden, uh, the impression is one of, you know, they're almost waving, waving at you. They, they have that kind of a, a human quality to them. Uh, but that's that's what they are. And oh, every, you know, May, June, they they flower and fruit and the fruit is the kind of the life-saving uh or life-giving element of the sonoran desert uh which enabled people to survive for you know years uh with the fruit of this plant which could also be made into a uh, a wine uh but it's typically something that can be you know processed uh and uh rolled out and and preserved so that that's that's basically what it is and they're found primarily in arizona and in like northwest mexico and a little bit in california right yeah that's correct the habitat stretches well it's an exclusive exclusively in the sonoran desert which uh about two-thirds of it is in mexico and a third of it is in arizona uh but the habitat is Oh, I'm almost 50-50 in Arizona and Mexico, maybe a little more. It goes all the way down to Gua Guaymas and as far north in Arizona as Kingman. But it, the Phoenix metropolitan area, the Tucson metropolitan area uh, are bracketed by, bracketed by the plant okay. in its native habitat. Okay, great. So your book, your book traces what you call you call it the social saguaro, and and how the icon of this this plant was used to advertise and kind of represent the Southwest, and how automatically it pops into our head. And your point is that well, that wasn't it's automatic now, but there was a whole process to it. So it seems very intuitive. You think of you think of the Southwest, you think of this cactus, but your book shows it was that process. So I want to start at the beginning of that process and ask you about some people and events. So the first one I want to ask you about is this: Who was Lieutenant? Lieutenant William Hemsley Emery. Well, Emery was the Army topographical engineer uh, who was charged with exploring the flattest route to the West Coast from the Missouri Territory in the era of the Mexican War. So Emery's travels uh, take him straight through uh, the Gila River Valley. I mean, he starts off St. Louis, then he goes to Kansas, then he goes down to Santa Fe. And then he cuts through the Gila River Valley, which is just south of the present-day city of Phoenix. Uh, and this is Saguaro land. And so his report, uh, which is published in 1848 uh, by the Congress of the United States, uh, features the first published images of, of the plant uh, in all of its glory. And uh, I like looking at a picture these early pictures of saguaros that come from these government exploring parties uh okay i like looking at images of the plant that come from government exploring parties uh, whose artists uh, typically picture it as a tree 
And the, the finished published image would include figures of people that were introduced for scale. And however, the, the figures of people were often reduced uh, in proportion uh, to the plant, which made the plants appear to be even more massive and dramatic as scientific discoveries. And, um, and this seems to have been a kind of a, a conscious decision because over a period of 10 years, Emery, uh, you know, it goes back out into the field. He publishes a second uh, boundary survey after the war. And he does the same thing again with a completely different set of artists and engravers and lithographers. And the plants become even more dramatic <laughs> and the figures come even more diminutive. Um, but it really didn't matter at the time because, I mean, he got out of it what he wanted. This is, you know, scientific drama uh, in the West at large. And it really probably didn't really even matter because a lot of people hadn't really seen the plants. And it didn't really become an issue until more people had seen them when you could clearly look and, oh, that's not right. So that's 1848. And you point out in the book how how quickly the saguaro was transplanted for use in like World's Fairs and collector's greenhouses and cactus clubs. And this was something that was all brand new to me that I thought was fascinating. Can you talk about what you call the cactus craze that took hold near like the, the end of the 19th century? Well, it's a and this was sort of I, I think maybe where what the book's contribution is and that this was new to me uh, too. And there's a uh, a kind of a conspicuous uh, transplantation of these plants. Uh, and it's when it, it starts in 1880, when the railroad comes to Tucson for the first time. And the railroad comes to Tucson from the West. So it comes from California to Tucson, and then it continues East. And then it links up with developments and things that are happening in the East. It's not the other way around what we typically think of, you know, the uniting of the rails. And as soon as the railroad you know, comes to the Sonoran Desert, uh, they begin transplanting cacti, saguaros, back to California. And one of the big four of the Southern Pacific, a man named Charles Crocker, uh, builds a, a hotel on the Monterey Peninsula, the Hotel Del Monte, and he has an Arizona garden, which includes columnar saguaros, uh, that are propped up with braces. And these things are maybe, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 feet high, quite dramatic. And they have other plants as well, yuccas, agaves, of course, palms, uh, in, Ari in Arizona garden. And it, the thing was such a hit that his partner, Leland Stanford, ordered up one. And so Stanford had one at his home at, well, what what's today's Stanford. Um, but the most notable uh, one was uh, the, Ari the Arizona Garden, uh, sitting there near Carmel on the coast uh, at Monterey, and and they were also uh, placed at Union or at Southern Pacific Railroad stations. So um, you might uh, have you might first encounter one in San Antonio, you know, trackside at a station, and then you would go. And, you know, 300, 350 miles, whatever, before you actually get to the Sonoran Desert, then you start to see them in the wild. And they also had them at their Los Angeles uh, depot, uh, which is kind of rather curious to me. I mean, there's a conceit uh, and there's in the book, there's a tall tale postcard. Things grow large in California. And it's a kind of a gag photo of a tiny diminutive man, not unlike the first, you know, Emery 
engravings and lithographs. And the plant is just this huge, massive thing. It's clearly like a cut and paste job, but that's the conceit. Things grow large in California. But in, in Arizona, they're not sure that that's really the symbol that they want. They're trying to, <laughs> well, I guess we'll get to that. But, um, but they also um, put them on the rails courtesy of the Southern Pacific, and they went to World's Fairs. And this was the most, uh, well, depending on, it could be either shocking or disturbing, uh, <laughs> depending on your point of view. We're at the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893. Uh, a Tucson theater owner uh, thought it would be a great idea to populate the fairgrounds with, with saguaros. And so... They actually, and this is the first photographic image of an armed and branched plant, massive plant. And this is something only the railroad could have done. You know, probably pulled it up trackside with a crane, probably built a, a, a framework, a structure, a padded structure around it. And then they install it at Chicago in front of the horticulture building. And it's simply described as the giant cactus. And so you see people in bowler hats, you know, walking by, posing, looking at looking at this thing. Um, and I mean, you understand it's a world's fair and it's, it's not a, a permanent thing. It's taken a saguaro can cheat death for years in or out of the ground and even bloom. It can't freeze. But nonetheless, uh, there it is. It's hard to know, I mean, what happened to that. I mean, some of them, some of them made their way into botanical, you know, hothouses and gardens uh, uh, in Pittsburgh, for example. Uh, they're, they're really survivors. They're pretty resilient. I mean, they can't, they can't freeze, but they do require some protection. But I think this is how the plant began to take on a kind of an iconography, a freestanding iconography that would just show up any place. And this is the West. This is what... This is what you're, where this came from. This is what's out there. You mentioned earlier that that originally not everyone was was all you know all in with the saguaro, and you use a phrase to capture the ways that the early boosters of the region they're trying to you know boost the region of of the Southwest. But the, you use this great phrase about how they thought about the saguaro sometimes, and it was this. I'm going to quote you. Your quotation is, "Cactus is here, but." <laughs> Cactus is here, but can you talk about that phrase and how that kind of echoes the way some people thought about what we see as this this absolute icon of the Southwest? Well, I mean, I I studied the the land sales propaganda uh, put out by the Territory of Arizona uh, and the railroads, which uh, seem to emanate from the same you know like thinking like thinking minds. Uh, they freely distribute each other's tracts and pamphlets and that kind of thing. And these things are legion, and because uh, you can download them, you know, easily now on the on the internet, you can search them pretty quickly for the word cactus or any one of the various spellings of the word saguaro, and you can see which ones don't even mention a cactus. Does it, does it strike you odd? Is odd, and which one? And, and when they do, how do they how do they describe it uh, for their would be audience of investors and uh, and and immigrants. Um, so that's the it's here, but uh, you know it's obviously there. How can you escape it? It's sight from from being there, but it might not be what you wanted to see uh, if you're planning on developing a citrus grove or an alfalfa field or 
you know, I mean, there's a picture in the book of an alfalfa field and they didn't even bother to take the the plants down, you know, they're just like farming around them, you know, to me, that is the biggest, it's so incongruous. I mean, that's what's incongruous. Yeah. You know. Also that it was brought, you know, like you say, to the World's Fair as the giant cactus. And it was kind of billed as almost like this botanical King Kong, this wonder right. of the world. But then where the, where the things actually live, it's like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just go around them. <laughs> well, but one of the, the fair, well, this is really, I mean, to this point in my, in my research and writing, this was just, these are just anecdotal. You know, there was a, a fair visitor from the Arizona territory who really worked himself up and took exception to seeing these plants at the fair because... Uh, in the way he put it in a little letter that he wrote uh, to the papers at the time that the, the state or the territory had missed uh, the opportunity to show off, you know, what the icon should be, which would be a statue of abundance <laughs> with a capital A, <laughs> with a horn of plenty in each hand instead of the withered cactus stock, you know, presumably demonstrating the poverty of the soil, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, actually would say that, you know, and, and so, I mean, that's what cactus is here, but you know, that's what that is. That's the, but your book is filled with people who, for whom the cactus engenders, you know, or provokes very strong emotions. So I want to ask you about the names of some of these folks as we go forward in time and ask you to talk to our listeners about them. So the first is tell everyone who was Harold Bell, Wright. Uh, Harold Bell, Wright was a romantic novelist, uh, He's largely forgotten today, uh, but he, in his time, the 19 uh, teens and 20s, uh, he was a preacher, a minister from the Midwest, and he um, he wrote a couple of sermons, uh, like almost a serial installment, and his parishioners begged him to publish them, and th these became, you know, major, uh, you know, successful novels, and he became became rich. And moreover, he turned them, he became a Hollywood filmmaker, turning his novels into pictures. And maybe the names are a little more familiar, Barbara Worth or The uh, the Mine with the Iron Door. And he usually would go to a place and live in it and in a matter of a year or two would start to write something about the place and use that as a, as a setting. And he had uh, chronic lung issues and he moved from Southern California to Tucson where he he worked in the sun, he lived in the sun, he moved way out of town to a, what would later become a guest ranch. He made a, uh, a work table where he could write sitting in the sun, but the, but the table, the writing surface would actually be shaded. And so he, he, got, he got better, he got well, and he ended up writing uh, an American magazine article entitled Why I Did Not Die. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> and this was something that, I mean, it just it just alloyed him to Tucson and and the history of the of the of the town. And just fast forward, he buys a attractive land way outside of town in the desert. He builds a, a Spanish revival house on a mesa. And he tells his construction crew, don't touch the plants. He has them landscape the driveway up to the mesa with electric lights and native plants. And when it was done, it set off a land rush among people who had also come west, many of them for their health, and also local Tucsonans 
who came out and said, this is really beautiful. Well, I mean, it had been there the whole time. The only thing that had changed was the introduction of this palatial home by a celebrity author, Hollywood filmmaker. And, uh, and he, it was just off and running. People began just opening their eyes that the desert is actually can be kind of beautiful. Um, and he certainly had the views of the mountain ranges and the bowl that is Tucson in this undisturbed setting, which is re just really spectacular. Yeah. And which is, again, like like we said earlier, what's so fascinating is that, that we think that it would be intuitive. Like, how could that not be intuitive to know how beautiful it was? But it's almost like people had to learn that. You used the phrase at one point, I think you say, um, he helped frame the desert for domestic consumption. Right. I mean, you know, I, that's kind of what that thought that you had about, you know, how can you, uh, how can it not, how can it not be? How can you not regard this as anything other than, than, than beautiful? And that's, that's sort of like what I thought when I approached the, the topic, because I assumed that there was this upward arc of, of, you know, as you get more familiar with the plant, it becomes more popular. In other words, popularity is a function of awareness. And, you know, what's not to like? Well, you know, like that fairgoer from the Arizona Territory who didn't like it at all, it is an upward curve, but it's it, but it goes up and it goes down. It goes up, it's going up, but it goes back. And it's like a saw blade, which is kind of an apt metaphor for where the iconography is headed, you know, going into the, the turn of the century. It's cactuses here, but... And you can also see it in the... Uh, the artwork that became the state seal, which is still in use today, which features a, a miner with a shovel and a pickaxe, you know, a storage reservoir with a dam and an irrigated green field, uh, a steer representing cattle. And there's no native botany at all <laughs> in the state seal. So, you know, that, so, it, but it, this business of picturing Arizona Right. Uh, it, in in this time, it all depends on who's in charge or who's in in control and what particular vision they have in terms of what the what the iconography is going is going to be. You know, for some, it's an orange tree. I mean, you know, oranges hanging. You know, and you think of Southern California has that same kind of you know golden glow. Uh, and, and we had that too in Arizona without a, without a native plant in sight. Right. Many people wanted that. Yeah. But, uh, you, yeah. You would think if you think if there was going to be one spot, you would start to find a saguaro it would be the state seal of Arizona. And as you show in the book, like, Nope, you keep looking, keep looking. Yeah. Um, then, so the next person I want to ask you about is Homer Leroy Chance. Yeah. Professor Chance, uh, it's an interesting figure. He, uh, He's a, a botanist and he, and a photographer, and he becomes the university president in 1928. And he has a, a pretty good tenure to that uh, 1936. So 28 to 36 are his, or his years uh, with the stock market crash and then and the depression. And the, uh, the Saguaro forest that would be to the east of uh, uh, Wright's property, uh, which is today's uh, current Saguaro National Park, Saguaro East. Um, 
would would have been you know accessible to him and to others who would go out there and it would it, when you joined the faculty of the university or you came to Tucson as a person of means you were often taken to this tract of saguaros these you know ancient you know core uh, specimens and it was just like this awesome thing and chance as the botanist spent a lot of time out there uh we know that because uh, his photo collection, his glass plate negatives, all have dates etched into the margin. And he's out there with another botanist friend, a man named R.B. Streets. They go out there almost every you know holiday weekend. So he spends a lot of you know George Washington birthday weekends <laughs> out there taking pictures. And a lot we and a lot of what we know about that track that is now the national park comes from uh, Chance's Chance's photos, particularly that stand of mature. Uh, Saguaros that uh, it is really no longer uh, with us. I mean, there, there of course are are others, but he was um, also responsible for developing the uh, University of Arizona's campus cactus garden as a as a kind of a dreamy uh, landscape that was set in an, a water collecting arroyo uh, right in the heart of the of the campus to the east of the. Uh, what's now the old main building. Uh, but it, again, it's it's still this back and forth kind of thing. You know, what should the campus look like? I mean, people come from elsewhere and they want Bermuda grass and, you know, flood irrigation. Uh, and after Chance left, the the campus, the Cactus Garden Arroyo was filled in. Uh, and it, it's now it's just trees and lawns with vistas of buildings, which was is pretty much what you see today. Uh, but with, for some, though, that was the vision, vision all along. And there is still a small little remnant footprint of that cactus garden that sits out as an island in the middle of this long green swad. So to go back to your idea back about the saw going back and forth, you think it's fair to say like the saguaro is kind of going, the story is going from like a decoration on the edge of an image of the Southwest, kind of like towards the center, it gets closer to the center, push back a little, gets closer to the center. Right. It, that literally happens. Um, <laughs> it's the travel and tourism industry that take this thing and spin it into the icon that you that you think about today. Um, and I collect. Well, I collected a lot of uh, you know contemporary travel brochures. And one thing I like about them, I mean, as a student of advertising, is they. They all use the, they don't really use photos that much. They use uh, the techniques of commercial illustration, which give things a kind of a, of a, a, a more, I don't know, there's just a kind of a, a warmth. Uh, yeah. And you can, you can get exactly the effect that you, that you want from an illustration. And so there are brochures that show you on the front of the cover which if you opened it, it would be to the right of the fold, okay, the kind of longitudinal fold. There'll be a, a woman uh, dressed as a cowgirl picking or fondling a an orange, you know, on a tree, and you can see the grove laid out, you know, to the horizon. And then when you you flip the brochure over, you see, hey, there's a, a there's an armed saguaro that's on the, the periphery of the edge. You know, it's not in the center of the fold. It's, it's not what you see. And then later you see where they just they just go for it. They put, you know, horseback riders and there's a saguaro 
and it's flowering and maybe there's a yucca on the spine uh and they've 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 totally gone you know to the horse the rider uh and then later on the swimming pool and you know, everything but yeah. there's will be a cactus there'll be there will be a saguaro uh and this is a function of travel and tourism i mean they they care about irrigation of course they care about you know people you know being able to sustain themselves and have a livelihood and all of that stuff but data botany is now ascendant in their in their literature and you can look and you'll find postcards of the way rooms are decorated and laid out where they'll have a bedspread with uh you know saguaro themes and so i mean you you're starting to not you can't get close enough to the plant now you know you can wrap up with it you know, get comfortable with it get cozy with it you can even sleep with it in the, in this in this in this literature so that's that's how it kind of gets set up and uh i guess if they had been making the state seal after the second world war or maybe on the eve of the war uh, they might not be have been able to get away without putting a, a an arm, you know, saguaro in it. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. It's sleeping with saguaros. That would be a great title for a western, wouldn't it? A dime novel. <laughs> um, well, so... in the arms, I was surprised. You know, I mean, I I researched that phrase. I typed oh, it. Really? in. it's easy enough to do, and no one had used it. Really? I was stunned. No, try it. Yeah, okay. I mean, even as a subtitle, it had never been used. I, I just don't know why. I, I'm, I guess maybe I just parachuted into Tucson. You know, I mean, I went to school here a long time ago, but I came back, and this is really the book that I wanted to check out of the library and read. You know, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I right. so, I, so I just did it. Well, you point out one way to gauge. So we talk about advertising, right? Another way to gauge the strength of the saguaro as an icon was, and this again, all all new to me, and all all so much fun to learn about. You talk about the pro proliferation of what you call cactus gags, and you talk about. I thought this was hilarious. The Sunshiners Modeling Club at Tucson High School in 1949. So talk about what cactus gags were, and especially the Sunshiners Modeling Club. Well, this this is where. Uh, I guess the uh, the denouement of the book is, you know, where it comes together with these photos. Uh, but they really have a kind, it, it is, it's an advertising story. Um, there was an organization uh, prepared in 1922. Uh, the City Fathers of Tucson, uh, after the census of 1920, realized that the population of Tucson had gone, it was now Phoenix was more pop, more populous population. And so they they formed a group aside from the Chamber of Commerce, which was a political group, to solely promote the city uh, as a winter destination. So they they developed a community advertising campaign with a Los Angeles advertising agency who told them the only thing you have to sell is sunshine. And so it became the Sunshine Climate Club. And so the Sunshine Climate Club funded an, an advertise a national advertising campaign uh in these high class magazines uh the and also newspapers uh in which the it it really wasn't heavy on illustration there were no cactus pictures but there was a little coupon at the end for you to clip out and send in for a free booklet that again did not picture a cactus on the cover but showed you 
you know, could be Tucson, any town USA. Once you opened it up, you did see pictures of, of Saguaro's, but that really wasn't the come on. And I mean, this was a Los Angeles advertising agency. And in, in, in quick order, Phoenix hired the same agency. And so you now have these two almost identical Southwestern, South Southern Arizona campaigns being run by a Los Angeles ad agency. And the, the agency, uh, it was uh, the McCann agency, later became McCann Erickson, but it's the McCann agency. They kept careful records and they could show the, the city fathers of Tucson who were in, spending their money on this campaign that people actually, once they had their name and address that they collected from the coupons, they could follow them. And some of them had actually moved to Tucson and bought homes. So this was an incredible campaign, but in the depression, it began to drop off and people in town uh, were reluctant to fund it and they began to drop out. So at the end of the thirties, uh, a couple of men get together and they decide that they could do a good job of taking what we will now call viral photographs that would recommend themselves to the nation's editors and newspapers uh, that they could place for free. And so they chose to make a photograph of a woman's sunsuit that was made out of saguaro ribs or saguaro, the, the growth tips of the thing. It looks like a bikini, a very thorny bikini. And um, and this went in, it was a huge hit, 300 newspapers, Life Magazine came calling uh, for the story. But the thing was kind of off-putting. And it became apparent to them that they liked the idea of not paying for advertising. They enjoyed, you know, cutting up plant parts and all that stuff, but it was easier to pose models, scantily clad models, young high school students sitting on the plants or leaning on them or, you know, barefoot and, you know, with pads and all, all that, all that sort of thing. And they, they, they didn't use the word viral. They, they called them gag photos cactus gags. And so uh, this was how they be began to promote uh, the Southwest with these bathing suit models posed on the arms, literally in the arms of, of Saguaro's. And that was kind of how I started out because I saw one of these magazine covers from you know 1950. It's in black and white. And I picked it up and I looked at it and go, wow, the woman, she's folding her arms and she's on the arm, her folded arms are on the arm that should have spines, but it apparently, the spines have worn off. Uh, maybe it suffered from loads of attention. I, it, it's hard to know, but the, it's something that you, even if you don't understand what the plant is, you cannot not look at it. You keep turning back and looking at it. So that kind of pose, it did its job. And, but I think it's also a, a turning point where people, uh, you know, they're starting to understand the environmental consequences of, 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 of the desert uh, in the way that it's framed up. You know, when you introduce people into it, uh, it becomes a, a, social, a social thing, a social occasion. So uh, that's what, where the, so, the idea of the social saguaro comes from. And it's usually in the company of freshly starched Western wear, uh, swimming pools, bathing suits, uh, truck wagons, uh, and sometimes campfires, and sometimes they're all in the same picture. Yeah, they are. 
you point out that that those those gag photos and the Sunshine Modeling Club, you say, you know, that was the beginning when people started to appreciate, and I love this phrase, the fragility of nature's sharpest curves. Right. That, yes. Yeah. So yeah. well said. So I have to emphasize, I want to change tack for a second and emphasize to our listeners that this is a this is a physically beautiful book. This book is a, is a beautiful object in its own right. There are color pictures on every page. They're really key to the text so well. It was like, it was such a nice feeling to read it and then figure seven, figure eight. And you flip around, you see, you see what you're talking about. I felt like I was in a museum of Saguaro's, of the, you know, the Saguaro Museum with you. And you were kind of like walking me through and say, okay, now take a look at this and here's what this means. So I, I want to ask you about your, your the way you collated all these images. And I know some of these, when I looked at the, the credits are from your own collections, right? So was was going through the images, how you learned about about the Saguaro and what you wanted to write about? Or did you have a lot of it written and then you kind of found images to to, to support that? Like, are you a, were you inductive or deductive in your Saguaro narrative? Uh, oh, gee, inductive or deductive. Well, <laughs> I was trained as a historian, uh, but I worked in a museum. And so everything there was from the object out. You know, I mean, to take a lesson from the art, art historians, really. I mean, I, I, I worked uh, at the National Museum of American History and most of my projects began with something interesting to look at. And then what is that story? I mean, uh, uh, just to give you I guess, some more relatable example, uh, I once curated a, an exhibit, it was American television. And the last thing you saw was a wall of metal embossed lunchboxes, you know, kids' character lunchboxes. And the the label in the middle you know, was like, well, you've seen, you know, television, you've seen all this, but in the end, television, it's the pictures in your head. Okay. Now I could miss with that label. You can agree with that. You can disagree with that. You can, but at least you saw something interesting to look at that might beg another question, but that was the question, or that was the statement that I wish to make. It's the pictures in your head. So there's kind of a, a link between that and like all of my projects. I mean, I I began this one, you know, probably just didn't even think about it as a book until maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago. But I found this, the magazine I was describing with the, the Western wear model, the guest ranch model with her arms folded in a sore. I mean, she's literally framed by the plant. And that, that I got the title from that, you know, I got the subtitle. <laughs> I mean, that was set me off. And then uh, it turns out that the Arizona Historical Society here, the Tucson branch, has the records of the Sunshine Climate Club from the 20s. Um, and it went up into the into the 60s. And there are hundreds of those photos that they took. They might not have used them all. They couldn't have used them all. And I realized this is a conscious strategy. This isn't like a one-off you know, hit or miss, there's like some thought that went into this. And it's really interesting when you, uh, you find people like that, who are, who they themselves are making things that they believe are inherently interesting to look at, think about that will generate interest and cause uh, conversation. And, uh, and they were ad, they were ad men, and it's men. And, and most of, most of the photographers were men, there are a few women, of course, but, um, it's mostly men and they were, were doing, were doing the job. 
So it is it is like it is like a like a small exhibit, but it's object. It's definitely object out. I mean, I try not to write. I mean, I don't know. I could go on, but <laughs> it's all good. It's all it's it's interesting. I, I was going to say you talked about Ad Man, which of course half the time I read the book, I thought of Mad Men and you know Don Draper and his staff. How are we going to sell and market the desert? And and at one point it occurred to me that well, the success of that campaign and what they did with the saguaro is 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 I'm proof of that because I'm sitting in New Jersey right now. And all of my images of Arizona are from films and 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 but Wiley Coyote and the things I've seen in your book. So so it's kind of like I'm proof that they're like, yeah, we got that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's go to our present day. You say uh, towards the end of your book, you say that um, the Saguaro is now having a moment, and you look at our present moment. So so how would you describe the moment that the Saguaro is having? Um, well, again, it's. It, it's it, it enjoys success as part of this toolkit of symbol symbols and memorable associations of pictures, images, and things that, that you carry around in your head. Um, and, and and again, but the, the and we talked about it, you know, before. I mean, the the western wear, the horseback rides, the campfires, the cookouts, the swimming pools, the bathing suits. It's part of this 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 toolkit, this package that is had been developed, and. It's basically uh, a vocabulary of kind of the fun and fun in the sun sales, the fun in the sun sales message uh, that took root, you know, in the Southwest. But then it also expanded out into the popular imagination onto the American roadside. And this, you know, there's a creative uh, habitat of, you know, neon signs. It's on placemats in Texas. <laughs> you know, it's on roadmaps. Tunes, uh, and and though this commercial habitat is completely imaginary, it's still very powerful. In fact, it may be more powerful. It overpowers the actual habitat itself. And this is pretty much where we are today in uh, fashion uh, and art. So, so that's our moment, right? I mean, you know, I also did a little research on my own when I knew I was going to speak to you to see, well, how much of a, how much of a big deal is is the cactus craze now all over the country? Because you mentioned like Leland Stanford and and you know the um the, you know the Arizona Gardens, and this was all news to me. How how zealous collectors are today, and how it's become something like comic books or baseball cards or, or, or works of art where you go on these websites and you can order cacti from, you know, from all over the world shipped to your door and people are still trying to recreate these gardens no matter where they live. Yeah. I mean, there is something, uh, you know, to me, it's kind of oddly uh, transforming. Uh, and even the smallest plant can suggest a, a larger plant. I mean, in the late 19th century, uh, plants saguaros were being sold little tiny you know diminutive things and uh and the, uh, pe the people who were selling them were were being critic were criticized because what's the likelihood that that's ever going to achieve you know maturity within your lifetime probably not but yet uh among a certain class of people it was a kind of a conspicuous you know consumption or conspicuous transplantation kind of thing uh, but today, uh, you can have, you know, something on your windowsill that can evoke uh, a memory and, a, and an image and a picture that you paint that you paint for yourself or that it paints for you. Uh, and I think that that's a very transportable and uh, a pleasant, a pleasant kind of thing to have an, associ an association. Uh, 
but is it with, but it's it's really it's more tough with a with a saguaro because it has to be grown from a seed you know it cannot be grown from a cutting i mean many people don't don't know that most of the articulated plants that you see are made that way so that they can drop off or be carried off on an animal coat or something and drop somewhere and whenever they make contact with the ground or it gets dark uh they can grow a whole they can just completely regenerate themselves uh from a cutting uh but that's impossible with a saboro which i think keeps it that special thing and oftentimes in you know decorator magazines and things you'll see a uh, there's a kind of a peruvian uh a columnar series series is like a column torch and and they'll trim it into the shape of a saguaro you know so it has you're still seeing this thing <laughs> this ursatz thing in the corner propped up in the corner with little arms coming out of it you know it's really trying but you just look at that if you know what you're looking at you go uh decor <laughs> in the arms of saguaros iconography of the giant cactus is published by the university of arizona press it's available everywhere it's a beautiful and a beautifully written book i thank you so much william l bird thank you for talking to our listeners about this great work thanks dan